You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, let's start off with a little bit of news at the top of today's show. Uh, you had a paper from NIPS that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, that's right. There's a paper at, at NIPS that I, I really enjoyed, um, and it gets at a problem that I, that I really care about. This paper came out of Joshua Bengio's lab at the University of Montreal, and the first author is, is Jean Dauphin. Uh, although there's another five authors on the paper, and we'll be sure to put a link on the on the website. Definitely. The title of the paper is a little bit obtuse. It's identifying and attacking the saddle point problem in high dimensional non convex optimization. Super clear. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Yeah. So what this uh, what this paper is about is rethinking some of the conventional wisdoms of neural network research. One of the kind of interesting things that's been going on lately, of course, is the resurgence of deep learning. But as we've often talked about. You know, neural networks are an old idea that in some ways kind of faded away from the machine learning literature in the 90s. One of the reasons that they faded away is that people weren't very good at performing optimization to fit neural networks to data. And people imagined, there was kind of a widespread belief, that this was due to many local minima in performing this optimization. So what do you mean when you say local minima? Are you talking about like little dips in the problem or in our in our thinking about the problem? Yeah, that's the right intuition. A lot of a lot of machine learning problems are framed in terms of optimization. We take some data, we take some assumptions and some modeling, and then we try to fit by performing some kind of, you know, by finding some kind of good minimum of this surface that we then that we then get. And this is something we talked about last episode when we were talking about optimization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, different kinds of surfaces make the problem harder or easier. And neural networks are a particularly difficult example. What it means to have local minima is that there are kind of a lot of potentially different, like little bowls, if you will. And if you start in one place, then if you sort of slide downhill, then you might only stay uh, near where you started in some little local bowl. You're trapped. Yeah, exactly. You're trapped in some little some little local area when what you want to do is try to get to kind of an overall global solution. And the kind of problems for which it's easy to find global solutions, we call those convex problems. That is, the whole problem is like one great big bowl. No matter where you start, you're going to wind up in approximately the same place, and a lot of different kinds of things work. And also, there's often quite nice theoretical results for different procedures to to perform such optimization. And you've also got a solution that other scientists could repeat using different equipment, and you would assumedly come to the same conclusion. That's exactly right. I mean, that's one of the things that's really nice about convexity is this kind of uh, reproducibility where, you know, if we have different random seeds on our computers and so on, then we're, but if we have the same data and the same model and the same setup, then we're going to get the same solution. You hope. We hope. But on but on non-convex problems and, and neural networks traditionally don't have that flavor. Like you could have the same data and the same model, but if you happen to use a different computer at a different time of day with a different random seed, then you might actually get a totally different solution. And it might work for you and fail for me. And that's bad from an engineering point of view, right? Because you can't guarantee you'll get the, you'll get good solutions. It's bad theoretically because you don't know what's going to happen, and it's it's sort of also bad science in the sense that it just makes it really challenging to reproduce, uh, you know, to reproduce somebody else's result. So this kind of specter of local minima was some of the reason that people lost interest in neural networks in the '90s and turned their attention to machine learning that you could do with convex problems. And and then it, it was a really interesting time in which people discovered that there was a lot of surprisingly complicated problems you could frame in ways that would be convex. And more recently, people, you know, have, of course, have started to revisit neural networks. And so as a result, they started to revisit the geometry of these kinds of problems and to try to understand this, uh, you know, these properties of convexity, non-convexity, and exactly what's going on. While it's important to remember that these problems are are very high-dimensional, and so a lot of our low-dimensional intuition doesn't really work, 
Convex problems you can think generally of as just being big bowls, and these problems with many local minima you might think of as having exponential, exponentially many little sort of egg crate. Uh, and everybody's bits trapped to them. in a little bowl yeah, all and, for and, themselves. Yeah, and it's very difficult to escape them. What this paper does through some thoughtful sort of theoretical analysis and also uh, some empirical analysis is tries to make the case that in fact it's uh, there are lots of what are called saddle points. Okay. So saddle points are a different kind of geometric structure that are a little bit different than bowls, um, and they're saddles. So in two dimensions, it's kind of easy to imagine what this would look like. Mm-hmm. Imagine taking a piece of paper, yep. and we take two ends, you know, the two opposite sides of the piece of paper, and I'm going to sort of wave my hands around here, but you take the two opposite sides of a piece of paper, and you kind of bend them down, uh-huh. say, and then you take the other two sides, opposite sides of the piece of paper, and you bend them up. So it's like in one direction, it's a parabola that's going up, and the other direction, it's a parabola going down. And they're sort of interlocked with each other. That's exactly right. And you can kind of imagine this looking like a saddle, which is what gives the name, where you know two of the sides are going off kind of the side of the horse, and um, and the other side is is headed towards like the pommel uh, of the saddle and towards the back of the seat. So that's the idea of a saddle point, and it's a little bit hard to imagine, but but this this idea, the structure generalizes to to high dimensional things, where you have a bunch of directions that are sort of curving down and some other directions that are curving up, and this is very non-bowl-like, and um, and when the kind of methods that have been developed for bowls encounter such points, they can often slow down a lot. In fact, they can slow down so much trying to get off of this saddle that uh, that you can't tell whether or not you're actually in a bowl or in a saddle. And what this paper does, like I said, is it tries to argue, and it makes, I think, a quite good case, that what we thought in the 90s were uh, these local minima, these little annoying bulls, it actually turns out you were just stuck on the back of a saddle and couldn't get off. Hmm. And this is a really interesting and surprising result because it kind of implies that actually there might be a way to the bottom if you just figure out what the right direction to go is. And uh, and it makes some suggestions on how to do that. And I think this is still kind of an open an open area of research and will be for quite some time uh, because it's it's trying to develop new methods for non-convex optimization. But I really like it because it's it's doing a kind of thoughtful, uh, sort of a thoughtful empirical theoretical analysis of these these difficult problems. So Ryan, give me the title of the paper one more time. The title of the paper is "Identifying and Attacking the Saddle Point Problem in High Dimensional Non-Convex Optimization." It appeared at NIPS uh, this last year. And it's at Ayashua Bengio's lab at the University of Montreal. That's right. And we'll have a link to it and the other authors that are on the paper at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And Ryan, a couple of days ago, Facebook announced that they are making some of the the tools yeah. that they use for machine learning open to the public. They're going to be open source now. Anybody can get their hands That's on right. them. And so I was thinking, I wanted to ask you, do you feel like this is part of a, a movement that we're going to see expand, sort of these companies that have taken to the Bell Labs model of research where they're doing their own in-house basic research on machine learning, and then making it available to the rest of the academic and also business community? Or is this just a sort of a one-time thing that Facebook is going to you know, plant their flag on and we're not going to see much more of it in the future? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of different things going on. I think machine learning as a community has, has a quite a good track record of releasing tools with the idea that lots of people could use them. Mm-hmm. And it's very often that you read papers and there's code available if you want to download it. There's also a bunch of... Uh, really interesting projects out there that people use and and popular toolkits for for languages and so on. And then there's also some individuals like, I don't know, say Neil Lawrence, who we'll talk to later in the season, who are really sort of serious advocates Champions. for yeah, really 
really um, make a big deal out of making sure that you do open science and computer science and that the way that that open science happens is by releasing your code. So some of this is just the values of the community, I think, and that a lot of the best tools have come out of academia. Some of it also has to do with, I think, that a lot of the best researchers in industry got indoctrinated with those values while they were in uh, academia and so now want to make sure that the, the new things that they're building and the new ideas that they're coming up with can propagate to the larger community. Some of it in the case of Facebook, for example, I think has to do with the fact that probably Facebook imagines that its tools are a sort of relatively small part of its value proposition. They have data that no one else mm. has. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so probably they don't necessarily feel like they need to worry too much about letting everybody know what nonlinearity they put into their neural network. And then there's also kind of more, you know, more complicated things such as the fact that it's a really great idea for you to have be the sort of um, maintainer of a very, very popular tool because then when people in the research community innovate and add new features right. to that tool and do all kinds of things, then you get to immediately take advantage of that. And, um, and so I think, that, I think there's a few different angles. I mean, one of them might also be that I know Jan LeCun, who runs Facebook's AI lab, takes open science very seriously also. Mm -hmm. And so I could believe that, uh, that he made this a priority when he established that lab. And that also it's a kind of recruiting tool because one of the ways that you can get the very best researchers is to assure them that they'll have a lot of freedom and continue to be able to write papers and release code as they did when they were in academia. And so, uh, so I think there's, there's probably a lot of things in, in play. And it's, it's great to see. And I should say, you know, Facebook's not the only, the only organization that does this. Other, you know, uh, other big tech companies have been, have been good about this too. Uh, Google has different tools that you can you can play with, as does Microsoft and so on. Really interesting. I you know I really hope that it's a uh, trend that continues for the sake of the field. I think it only helps to spur further innovation and research. Yeah, it's great. It's and it makes me proud of the community that they can they can be open in this way. So we'll have a couple of articles that talk about this posted on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, and we'll also have a couple of open source tools that you can use to explore your own research. Yeah, we'll throw some links at you that you can check out. So, Ryan, we've got another listener question this week, and uh, this week it comes all the way from Australia. Hi, Catherine and Ryan. My name is Christian Muse, and I'm a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I work on planning techniques for multi-agent systems. Uh, I just had a quick question about how deep learning is perceived in the ML community, given the recent enthusiasm about the topic, both from academia and industry. Um, in 2013, uh, Hector Levesque, the award winner for the Ichikai Research and Excellence Award, uh, pointed out a fault of the AI community in general. Uh, it was serial silver bulletism, and he defined it as the tendency to believe in a silver bullet for AI coupled with the belief that previous beliefs about silver bullets were hopelessly naive. Uh, so back in the day, automated theorem proving was supposed to be the, the thing that would solve all of our problems, and then it was expert systems and so on. So it's changed throughout the years, and we always move from one silver bullet to the next. Uh, this was said mainly in the context of what the community thought would solve the strong AI problem. But I'm curious if there's a consensus in the ML community that deep neural nets are the silver bullet, either for the types of problems that machine learning research tries to tackle, or even more broadly, a silver bullet for strong AI in general. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this and what the ML community uh, generally thinks about uh, deep neural nets in that regard. Uh, I'm loving the podcast so far, so keep up the great work. Thanks. Cheers. 
So Ryan, deep neural networks are super popular right now. We had a whole discussion of them with Ilya last episode. Do you think that they are an actual viable solution to strong AI? Or is this, you know, in the in the tradition of silver bullets that turned out not to be a silver bullet, is it just a trend? Well, you know, deep learning is very exciting and deep neural networks are, are very powerful machine learning tools. I think it's it's worth sort of trying to identify, too, what it is that we mean by silver bullet here. Yeah. I think what he's saying, we talked about silver, silver bulletism. And by the way, IJCAI is the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence, which is one of the major AI conferences that happens every other year. What he's talking about with, with silver bulletism, I think, is the idea that there could be a sort of a single tool, a single algorithm, a single idea that if sort of like replicated on a large enough scale or sort of initialized in a clever enough way could uh, could result in sort of a sentient machine. I view this as a uh, as a kind of physics envy. Hmm. So uh, physics is a very appealing field, very appealing scientific field, because it's about explaining natural phenomena using v- very simple um, representations, right? The history of physics is the idea that Things that seem very complicated can eventually be reduced if you sort of peel back the layers of the onion to a small set of equations. So things like um, quantum mechanics and relativity um, and and so on are sort of quite simple things that explain a very large number of sort of emergent phenomena. And the search for the unifying theory is just, you know, further continuation of that. Exactly. And and there's a sensibility uh, associated with that that is that you get the right answer if things are really simple and that we can expect that things will be simple. And this is something that lots of other fields in science would like to would like to have also, but it doesn't really hold up, hold up all that often. Um, that if you sort of like look deep enough, then there's just the one true equation that explains a lot of things. And that's true in um, biology. Uh, that's true in economics, even though people would really love it if there was like a really small set of macroeconomic equations that govern everything. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And people, and that doesn't prevent people from looking for them, but it's probably not true. It, it also is something that, that uh, comes up in neuroscience too, right? Where we know, we think we know that neurons are where all the action is. Uh, and there is a lot of activity that propagates along neurons in the form of action potentials and dendrites and so on. And I think there's a hope that there's a kind of a particular way, a particular kind of computation that neurons implement. And that if we can just understand that, then we'll unlock the secret to the brain. But then it turns out there's a lot of different kinds of neurons and they all seem to do a little bit different things and act in different ways. And, uh, and sometimes it seems all a bit hacky. So it doesn't seem clear that there is like the one true way that like a neural system works. Um, and that's our only example of intelligence. So I don't think there's much hope that we'll have artificial systems that also are implementations of the one true algorithm. I kind of liken this whole thing to like, you know, when you're climbing, you're going on a hike and you're climbing up a mountain. Yeah. Um, and at any given moment, you sort of see this ridge in front of you, right? And, and that, that's and, the highest peak. Yeah, and that's the highest peak. That's what you're hiking towards. And it's human nature to imagine that that is going to be the place you're headed. And when you get to the top, there will be no further real difficulty. You'll basically be at the top of the mountain. But, of course, over and over again, as you hike up the side of a mountain, you discover that there's actually uh, even more challenging ridges ahead of you. Hmm. And science, and it's exactly the same way. We are confronted with an immediate challenge, and we understand some things, or we think we understand some things about what makes it hard. We try to make progress on those those challenges. And uh, more often than not, when we get to the top of the hill, we discover that many more challenges remain. 
So deep learning is in this really interesting phase of that in which it seems like we're knocking off lots of new problems. Uh, so it started out kind of thinking about visual object recognition and speech, which are, are hard problems. And it's propagated into other kinds of surprising things like natural language processing, automatic image captioning, predicting the properties of molecules, you know, lots of different things. Once you see that sort of circle of competence widening, then it's natural to, to wonder where it will stop. And we don't, we don't yet know, but that doesn't mean that it encompasses everything. There's plenty of reasons to be excited. I don't view this as a problem, but I don't think serious people imagine that this is like, you know, that AI is, is done as soon as, we, as soon as we build really big neural networks. I think this kind of like, you know, the combination of exciting new results, mm -hmm. um, you know, interesting kind of progress on, on sort of, let's call it weak AI, mm -hmm. um, and lots and lots of money. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's you know, has made it, has inflated its It's an equation it's for hype anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Definitely. And, and like I said, I don't, I don't want that to imply that it's not, that it's not interesting and it's not important, but it's, it's, it's one piece of the larger machine learning picture. Definitely. Well, Christian, thanks so much for your question. And if you have a question for us here at Talking Machines, you can reach us via Twitter, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. Ryan, do you want to pause and make fun of me for choosing that Twitter handle for uh, us? I don't think so. Okay. That's enough for today. Okay. And or you can get us via email at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. So our guest today on Talking Machines is Kevin Murphy, who's now at Google. And Ryan, you know him personally. Yeah, you know, Kevin had a huge influence on me becoming a machine learning researcher. I was an undergraduate at MIT. He was a postdoc in Leslie Kelding's lab. And I was, you know, looking for some guidance somewhere to go to grad school. And Kevin sort of like told me that, you know, Kevin basically told me what I should do. And that's what I did. And here I am. So when we sat down with Kevin, the first thing that we asked him was what he's working on now at Google. Probably many of your listeners have heard of the Knowledge Graph, which is this large database of facts which shows up um, sometimes when you do Google searches. And the project has been to try to make that database even larger and to include more information so that when you ask Google questions, we can answer them for you. Expand a little bit about that. How, did, how does that fit into sort of the thrust of modern machine learning? Well, you know, I mean, machine learning is a, is a way to, uh, you know, is a particular attack on artificial intelligence. It's about thinking about how we can build systems that do the kinds of things that uh, we want automated systems to do, that think like us, broadly speaking. And, and one of the ways that uh, we think of things as being intelligent is when they, they understand the world using similar language and concepts and abstractions to us. And in a sense, that's kind of what the knowledge graph seems like it's about, is, is trying to come up with a representation that maps well onto people's intuitions and the way that the people understand things. Yeah, I think um, you can, there are certainly many problems that can be solved using you know, technological methods that aren't like the way humans or even animals solve these problems. And that's fine. Like self-driving cars don't really drive the way people do. And, and you know, other applications use similarly black box methods. But when you want to communicate with a machine using language, it's really helpful if the machine thinks the way a person does. And of course, we can't do that right now. But if we want to have more natural conversations with Google Now or our other devices on our phones, then we want the, the phone to 
understand what we mean and without us having to be you know robotic in our speech we want to talk to our phones naturally the way we talk to people so correct me if I'm wrong but this sort of feels like SAT prep for for machines like read this paragraph and be able to extract the the relevant information and give it back to me is that is that right or am I no that's that's a good analogy um, we don't know how to solve those problems right now I mean SAT tests are hard even for people right <laughs> so um, but there are many folks working on that um, we've been uh, looking at more general knowledge sources, sort of think more like Wikipedia. And so, you know, the, Google has a large team working on expanding the knowledge graph. So I'm part of a research team where we're looking at methods to try to automate some of that process. Um, but yeah, one of the holy grails is question answering and story understanding. You know, people have been working on this problem for 50 years or so. So, so that's really interesting. So over the past 50 years, how do you see the, the approach to story understanding change? Has it changed much, or is it just sort of incremental steps building on each other? No, I think it, it, it kind of fell out of fashion because it was given, people gave up, it was too hard. Um, I mean, I think early work by Shank on scripts and understanding stories, there was a lot of hand engineering required, and people realized this wouldn't scale. It, we can't write down all of the knowledge that's needed to understand stories hmm. um, because it's just too much effort and we don't even know how to represent it. We don't know how to write it down. So machine learning kind of comes to the rescue because the advantage of machine learning is you just give examples of what you want the system to do. You don't have to tell the system how to do it. You just say, here's the input, like here's some text, here's the answer that I want you to extract. You go figure out how to extract the answer from the text. And right now, those kinds of question answering things we don't know how to learn how to solve them, hmm. but there are simpler problems that we do know how to learn how to solve, like to extract facts from you know, declarative sentences where we can recognize the entities and the relationships. And we can use machine learning to figure out which features of the sentence are uh, predictive. And we don't have to write the, the, the rules by hand, right? The machine can learn from examples. So it's much easier to provide examples than it is to create rules, and more robust too. So, so how do things like the knowledge graph relate to some of these these projects that these kind of long trajectory projects like Psych or some of these these things that um, are about collecting common sense knowledge? Yeah, that's a good question. So, the knowledge graph currently is focusing on you know factual information that's of direct use to uh, you, our users. So, you know the names of actors in movies. You know, maybe you're watching a show on Google Play and uh, you. You want to know who's in it, and you get the cast list, and you want to say, oh, what other movies have they been in? And it says, okay, Tom Cruise has also been in this movie, and then maybe you go watch it. So there's a lot of focus on um, media, popular media, music, TV shows, also local businesses and things that you might want to buy. So things of commercial interest. Um, now, internally within the company, um, there are uh, some research efforts that are trying to focus on more common sense knowledge, which is what Psych was trying to do. And that's a very hard problem, and we, you know, we are making progress, but that's surprisingly, you might think, you know, the stuff that children know is easy, and this sort of obscure facts about different brands of iPhones or TVs is, would be hard. In fact, it seems to be the other way around. What are some examples of, of sort of common sense knowledge that, that tend not to appear in, in the knowledge graph? Well, we um, don't, you know, things like um, habits of people, right, that people drink water to survive. Water is wet. If you pour a cup of water on the floor, it will make the floor wet. If the floor is wet, you might slip and break your leg. Um, if you break your leg, you go to hospital and it hurts. And all <laughs> of this stuff, right? I mean, the, the, I mean, it's, it's almost infinite what we don't know. And what's surprising is that, you know, the, the machines know more than people do in certain specific domains. 
And that's, of course, very useful, right? So there's been breakthroughs recently in the computer vision area where computers are able to recognize kinds of plants or dogs more accurately than people can, I mean, maybe excluding certain experts, more accurately than most people can. Um, nevertheless, they fail on regular, everyday scene understanding problems. So what do you feel like is, is sort of the next step in understanding the storytelling aspect for machine learning? So, like I mentioned, this is a, you know, a classic problem. I think the approach that people are trying now is to use machine learning and um, if, if they, you know, maybe training on SAT style stories, like you said, where there's uh, multiple choice answers. And of course, IBM Watson has had great success in natural language text understanding. And they were helped by the fact that, you know, they've published papers on their algorithms and what led to the success. And one of the key things is that there's a, a finite set of possible answers, and they have training data from previous years at the Jeopardy show. And they can build up various NLP, natural language processing algorithms that extract facts from various corpora, web, um, Wikipedia, and other resources. And they can parse the question, and they do various, they have various kinds of expert modules that, you know, determine if it's a question about, um, you know, a sports person, or if it's you know, about poetry or whatever. They try to classify what kind of question it is and what kind of answer would be appropriate. And they have different expert systems that produce answers of the right type. And then they have machine learning that figures out which of these systems to trust. And they can, these machine learning algorithms have um, parameters that you need to estimate from data. And they have training data. That was the key, one of the key breakthroughs is that they had historical data from the game that had been stored and they were allowed to use. And that's what led to the breakthrough. So I think people would like to, so it's a tremendous success. And I think, you know, IBM is justifiably proud of it, but nevertheless, it's quite a narrow regime. Yeah, and, Jeopardy you know, answers. Yeah, if you apply, they're trying to apply that same technology to medical text understanding yeah, or wow. the medical domain. And I'm not sure how that's going. You should talk to one of the IBM people. Um, but if you look at more general text, like, you know, uh, what infants might read in elementary school, um, that's still beyond the scope of, anything that IBM or anyone else has developed. But I think people are trying, there's multiple attacks, but one is to try to do something similar where you have different sort of experts looking at different kinds of questions or, um, and they maybe all suggest answers and then there's some system at the top level which is kind of like your consciousness that's deciding, okay, which one makes the most sense? And that often relies on a lot of background knowledge about how the world works. So typically the, the right answer to a question isn't explicit in the text. It's some inference that we make based on what the text said and based on everything we know about the world. And that's, you know, hopefully the knowledge graph could help with that. There's a bit of a mismatch because the knowledge graph, you know, knows about movies that Tom Cruise is in, but doesn't know about Mary having a little lamb, right? It doesn't know the, the sort of common sensey things we were talking about earlier. Um, so, I mean, I can mention another group that's working on this. I mean, there's several groups throughout the world. Um, the, a, the um, Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle, AI2, they're specifically focusing on story understanding. And there's some interest in it at Google as well. And there's been a larger research thread and other groups at Google and, and at Toronto and other places also in trying to, um, I mean, we mentioned this before, but but trying to invent text surrounding uh, surrounding videos and scenes, right? Okay, that's a, yeah, that's a different topic. That has- um, But it feels, Related, right? Because this is this is like you know needs to build in interesting domain knowledge. Uh, yeah, and no, for sure. I mean, a lot of, in to the extent that understanding scenes and understanding stories both rely on world knowledge, 
the problems are related. So the the issue of labeling images with sentences has um, always been an open problem. There's been a massive breakthrough. And what's interesting is, is a couple of things. First of all, it happened simultaneously, more or less, within a days of each other, that five groups, at least five groups, so Google, Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, and Toronto, all submitted, submitted papers to the CVPR conference using very, very similar techniques and all getting like state-of-the-art results in terms of describing images with captions that read like natural language text. Um, and they use the latest breakthroughs in deep learning to do that. And so this is quite a significant uh, landmark, actually. You know, people have been working on machine translation, of course, for a long time, but the breakthrough was to try to use recurrent neural networks to do that. And it was, I mean, many people, including myself, didn't think it would work. And it's worked quite well, I mean, surprisingly well. Obviously not human level and not as good as specialized systems like Google Translate, but still remarkably well. So the key insight was, well, instead of, say, translating French to English, let's tra translate an image into English. And um, it's just mapping from one domain to another. And you can actually use rather similar techniques. You replace the, the encoder model that maps French to an idea with an encoder model that takes an image to, an I to, a, to a percept. Mm -hmm. And that the image recognition technology, there's been many, many groups working on that for years. And that itself has had a significant um, amount of progress in the last couple of years because of deep learning and because of large labeled data sets. So many groups, Stanford and, and Google and um, Oxford and teams around the world actually have been making great strides there. You know, these days it's pretty easy to put things together, right? We have uh, very good software tools to just take, and people are sharing a lot of these things publicly. Obviously the companies are able to do this internally, but there's also software that's made available to the public. So the CAFE system from Berkeley, for example, made these breakthroughs available to everyone. And then other teams were able to just take state-of-the-art image recognition and combine it with this translation idea and put two and two together. So I think open source has kind of leveled the playing field. And we all have access to fast computers and GPUs. And, and everyone's reading the same papers. So the, the pace of progress is very fast. So is there any hope of taking these kinds of systems that are able to sort of construct text from images and uh, adapting your knowledge vault system to uh, to learn facts about the world based on uh, based on images in the wild. Yeah, that we that's one of the reasons I'm interested in image analysis is that a lot of common sense facts are not written down because they're obvious to people. Like the example I gave earlier, you know, you pour water on the floor, the floor becomes wet and it becomes slippery. And and but you might be able to take a sign that says slippery when wet, and maybe you can learn from that image uh, what how that you could run OCR, optical character recognition, on that image and you could convert that into text and it's telling you a little bit about the world and maybe you see there's a puddle and it's a bit of a stretch but in principle there is knowledge that we can extract from images and especially from videos that's just implicit and people wouldn't bother writing it down and maybe we can, I mean it's clearly human children acquire this knowledge from somewhere and they play in the world and they get muddy and they make spill water and milk and God knows what. And uh, that's how we learn about the world, right? We interact with the world and we experience it. And you know, maybe we have to build robots to interact with the world too, but it'll be, maybe we can short circuit that a little by just watching videos. So I wanna uh, switch tracks a little bit. Uh, you recently published a textbook. I did. 
And I, I was researching a little bit, and there's a there's a Reddit about your textbook. And the first really? yes, the first question is which I am trying to read Kevin Murphy's textbook, and I can't get into it. What do I need to know to be able to understand <laughs> Kevin Murphy's textbook? So Kevin Murphy, what do I need to read to be able to understand your textbook? Oh goodness. Well, it's it's a uh, um, it's designed for mostly graduate students and maybe senior uh, undergraduates. Um, so people who have you know, suitable mathematical training, um, who have maybe, you know, taken a basic class in probability theory and linear algebra and have some comfort with programming in, you know, Python or some language like that. Um, so one thing I might, I might point out, actually, as part of this conversation is, so have you seen Meta Academy? Uh, so do you know Roger Gross? Yeah, I know Roger Gross. Yeah. Roger Gross is, who's a, uh, used to be a PhD student at, uh, at MIT and is now a postdoc at Toronto, mm -hmm. and Colorado Reed, who was one of Zubin Garamani's students and now is on the West Coast, I'm not sure where. Um, they've put together this, uh, this kind of, um, it's almost, it's not precisely a knowledge graph, but it's a, it's a kind of compendium of, of knowledge as relates to uh, to machine learning specifically, so mm -hmm. let's imagine that you're reading you're reading Kevin's book and you encounter support vector machines and and you encounter this word kernel that you obviously need to understand if you want to un be able to understand support vector machines, mm -hmm. and so then you you sort of uh, the idea is that you can be reading the page on support vector machines and it can it will give you a curated list of the knowledge that you need to have in order to be able to read that page, mm -hmm. and then you can sort of wander up this uh, this chain of knowledge until eventually you get to the place uh, where you you know you're sort of grounded and then you can sort of so walk back down the, the list. The concepts are linked. They're like nodes in a graph, and there's documents associated with them, like yeah. pointers to canonical articles. Or whatever. Th that's exactly what it is. Is it's it's has a, sort of a description there, but then also links to different kinds of resources. So perhaps it might identify a particular chapter in your book, and also maybe. Uh, you know, the Bishop book, but oh, also the Wikipedia remember, article remember, and other yeah, things. Yeah, I remember Roger telling me that he was going to work on this. And um, I think one problem is that if you're referring to different chapters of different books, they'll use different notation. Right. And you spend more time translating the notation than you do understanding the concepts. And, and I had this problem teaching, and I know many other people did do, which is one motivation for writing my book. You know, I would teach a little bit from Chris Bishop's and a little bit from the Hasty Tipsharani Freeman book. And they would use, you know, the, the statisticians use beta to represent parameters and the machine learning guys use W and they mean the same thing. And I mean, even within my own book, one of the criticisms I've received is that I'm not even internally consistent, <laughs> although I think I do a better job than, you know, mixing and matching different books. So that can be a real problem. I mean, just ling linguistic terminology, but also just mathematical notation when it isn't codified in the field. Mm -hmm. Or switching, you know, simple things. If you're an undergraduate and you see X sub I, and then some other paper says x sub n. Is that mm -hmm. the same thing? Right. I mean, n and i, they're random variables. And they're dummy indices, right? It doesn't really matter. But And they just you know count instances. But there's different conventions in different subfields. And that kind of thing can be confusing. If you're just on the edge of understanding, that can push you over the edge. And one of the things that's kind of funny, uh, I mean, machine learning is exciting because it brings many different fields together uh, and it has a history of bringing in computer scientists and statisticians and physicists. And of course, each of them brings their own notation, their own conventions about what sure. the one true notational pattern is. Right. Uh, and this just sort of makes it <laughs> even worse. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think that's, I agree that machine learning is this sort of portmanteau of you know, predominantly statistics, but highly influenced by physics and other domains and that makes it exciting but can make it a little um, difficult to enter. Um, I should point out however 
for those of you listening, that uh, I, I apologize for all of the typos in the first version of my book. <laughs> uh, it went to press rather quickly. And so if you have an old copy, um, it, it does have quite a few errors, and I'm sorry for that. Um, the latest printing is the fourth printing. It's been quite popular, so they've, they're up to round four. And um, most of the, all, all the known errors have been fixed. So it should, I don't want to say it's flawless, but um, there are very few errors now, I believe. And I'm hoping actually to work on a second edition. MIT Press has asked me to start thinking about that. It might take a couple of years, so don't wait for it. Um, but eventually, you know, the field is moving fast, like I said. And, you know, I realize my book is like a de facto standard now in many classes. So I would like to keep it up to date. I mean, one of the challenges in a very fast-moving field is, of course, deciding when you're going to stop and write the book and kind of where the horizon <laughs> is. The uh, One of the things that makes your, your book really remarkable and really great from my point of view for trying to teach a graduate course that gives a reasonable snapshot of modern machine learning is that it it sort of uh, references papers and ideas that are, that are quite recent. And this is in contrast to other good books, for example, uh, Chris Bishop's book that, uh, you know, uh, sort of stops at, well, that was written in maybe 2006, but that in a sense is was complete from a technical point of view in sort of 2000. So how did you grapple with this decision of where to draw the line on what to include? That's difficult. I, I should pay homage to Chris's book. I, I taught classes from it myself for, for several years and I learned a lot from it. Um, but yes, it was the fact that it was somewhat out of date that was a motivation for me to write my own book and to try to you know bring some more modern material in it. It's very difficult. Like the chapter, I wrote a chapter on deep learning, and that's one of the fastest moving subfields of machine learning, and it's already significantly out of date. Um, so you know that's one of the things that I hope to update in the second edition. But there are other topics that I didn't have space to cover. So stuff that Ryan works on, for example, with. Bayesian optimization didn't make it into the first edition. Um, and at the time, it maybe didn't seem that important. And recently, I think its value has become apparent. Similarly, reinforcement learning, I, I made a conscious decision not to cover it because it was, I think, considered somewhat fringe. And recently, I think there's been a lot of breakthroughs in the field, partly due to the DeepMind guys in London, um, but some other groups as well. And it's you know of increasing importance, I think. And it's not covered in any of the other books. So, um, it's just my gut instinct about what's important. Like what I, th at the time I wrote it, I was a professor at the time and I was writing what I think the students ought to know. It was kind of like the field guide to surviving NIPS and, <laughs> and getting your thesis at a top school. Like, what do you need to know? You pretty much need to know everything in that book and, and, and other things too. It's not, you know, encyclopedic, but I was trying to be as broad as possible. Um, so yeah, I will, unfortunately, the new edition is likely to be longer, I'm afraid. That's just what happens, right? Uh, it's yeah, it's a judgment call. So you have your book and it's doing very well, and your next edition is coming out soon. But there's, there's well, my next edition's not coming out soon. I had been asked by the publisher to think about writing a second edition. So, so the thought has been planted in my mind, um, and I hope to, you know, execute on that eventually. But it might take a few years. So it's coming. So it's coming out in the future. Yes. There's a future second edition. Yes. But right now you're battling like an evil twin for your first edition. Well, I wouldn't say evil twin, but. Um, you know, my book is quite long, um, and I, I don't want to say I apologize for that. I, I recognize it's long, and some people want to get the nuggets quickly. And it's always tempting to find like a Reader's Digest version of my mm -hmm. book. And there is, if you, there is such a book available online, I've discovered it on Amazon called The Study Guide to Machine Learning: A Probabilistic <laughs> oh, no. Approach. But I would definitely not recommend it to anyone. Not, <laughs> it is extremely full of errors. Uh, basically, they have 
cherry-picked you know, quotes and uh, definitions out of context and made a lot of factual mistakes. So it has no value at all. If you need a condensed introduction to machine learning, you'll have to look elsewhere. Right? There are good introductory books available, and, but they keep changing, so you'll have to look at the Amazon reviews or, or the Wikipedia pages to find out. So don't buy the crib notes. Don't buy the crib notes, sorry. So you heard it here first. Kevin Murphy says you can't buy the crib notes. They don't match the textbook. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? There's not actually a good machine learning algorithm for automatically <laughs> summarizing Kevin Murphy's book. <laughs> we should get Kevin to write one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's it for us today here on Talking Machines. You can reach out to us on Twitter at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. Or if you want to spend less time spelling, you can get us on Gmail at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Swing by our website where we'll have links to all the papers and articles that we talked about today, thetalkingmachines.com. That's it for me. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next time.